0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we are in verses 10 through 19. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19, which is a rejoicing passage, which is the final rejoicing passage of the book. We've had several. And uh, this is the final one. It's also our final uh, thinking passage. We've had several thinking verbs, uh, most notably uh, with respect to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Uh, we have that same thinking term here used twice in verse 10 where it's translated as concern. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And that uh, is the verse that sets off this paragraph all the way down through verse 19 related to grace provision and how the grace of God is supplied in our lives. Uh, Verse 19, my God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we've got a lot of grace that we're going to be looking at here in these verses. Before we get started let's take a moment for silent prayer ask our Father's blessing upon our time and His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together, the privilege and delight that it is. Father, Your Word commands us to study, and uh, what an easy command to obey, Father, because it's such a blessing, and such a joy to peer into the truth of Your Word and to learn these, these powerful blessings. So Father, open our eyes, show us what we need to see, teach us what we need to live, We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, uh, having broken this chapter down into three parts, we've covered verses 1 through 9 already, which is the practical applications, the imperatives that come if you're going to be rapture ready, if you're going to be joy and crown kindred, then these are the imperatives for you to pursue. Moving on to the middle portion of the chapter, verses 10 through 19, One final item Paul mentions prior to closing the epistle is the grace financial provision he appreciated from the Philippian saints through Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the courier who not only brought the funds but remained with Paul and served him personally as a server minister. We talk about server minister as a giftedness and as a ministry uh, field. And this is what Epaphroditus uh, engaged in as the Philippian apostle to Paul's needs. And uh, We'll deal with those circumstances as well. Finally then the epistle closes with really one of the shortest benedictions of any Pauline text, uh, closes with one of the shortest greetings and doxologies of any Pauline text in verses 20 through 23. That doesn't mean we're just going to blow through it in a class or two and ignore the rest because there is some meat to be found in those verses, uh, but it's basically 20, 21, 22, 23 that we'll uh, spend some time in to tie the book together. So for this morning, as we deal with this grace-giving gratitude, grace-giving gratitude is what I've titled the paragraph, because that's what it comes down to. They gave the grace, and Paul was very grateful for the grace and wanted to give praise to Jesus Christ for the uh, the grace as it was extended. So let's read through. Let me just read from 10 down to 19, and you'll see uh, what this passage is dealing with. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, finally, You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned either before or the whole time. You have been concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And this is where it gets powerful. This is where you and I can be masters of our circumstances and details of life. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And I know folks have been waiting for that verse to come along because they want to learn how to do all things. Well, we're going to learn how to do all things, but we're going to learn how to do all things in the context of this spectrum of daily life, whether it's rich or poor or somewhere in between whether it's healthy or sick or somewhere in between, whether it's happy or sad or somewhere in between. Every spectrum we deal with in personal daily life, uh, the provision is there by the grace of God for us to be content. And so we'll learn the secret of contentment, which is uh, what it comes down to there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me. That's a fellowship term. You have done well to engage in fellowship in my affliction. And this is where grace allows us to have fellowship in the circumstances of other believers in uh, personal daily life as we deal with it there. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So there's personal giving, And then there's church corporate giving. And how does this function when it's a church that's supporting a missionary endeavor? And we'll discuss that as well. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And this is where we have to recognize the difference between earthly money and spiritual money. We have to recognize the difference between, yes, it's an external thing when you're sending cash to a ministry, but it is a spiritual endeavor as well. The sweet smelling savor goes up to the Father's throne of grace. And that's the prophet. He says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And I love the fact that God has coordinated this so that we get not only the book of Philippians and this language of fragrant aroma, we get it at the same time that He's also giving us the book of Hebrews and He's giving us the priestly doctrine as it pertains to our priesthood in Christ and what happens in the holy place and what happens in the holy of holies and how do we operate in our priesthood as a fragrant aroma, a, uh, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And in that context then, my God will supply all your need, singular. I know it says needs plural. I know you've got an S on the end of your need there in verse 19 if you're reading a New American Standard translation or any really of the modern English translations. But uh, kreia is a singular noun. And we'll discuss what your one need is when uh, we get there because we have one need in the Christian walk. And God supplies it according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that's what we're dealing with here in this paragraph from verse 10 down through verse 19. It starts not only with rejoicing, but it starts with mega rejoicing. Megalos is the adverb. And this is the final time for uh, rejoicing to occur. Mega rejoicing in the Lord. Now at last, finally, their concern has revived. It's been nursed back Health. It's it's resprouted after a time of dormancy. Mega rejoicing in the Lord. This is the fourteenth and final reference to rejoicing in this epistle. Fourteenth and final time we've had several. We went through them Wednesday night. I won't go back through them this morning. But uh, it's a book of rejoicing, no question. The verb Cairo, the noun Kara. Speaking of of uh, to the verb is to rejoice. The noun itself is a noun of joy. Commonly it's even given to girls, it's a feminine name, a girl's name Kara that speaks of joy in uh, in the Greek. Fourteen times in Philippians, it just saturates the book. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that's that's every chapter for you. And it's got rejoicing and joy right there throughout the book. This is the fourteenth and final time. And it's the first time that Cairo is connected with the adverb uh, for mega, the, the megalos Pre, uh, adverb that speaks of the greatness, the uh, majesty of the joy. It's the greatest joy imaginable. Where it says "Acarin de incurio megalos," that he is rejoicing megalos. Now at last, now at last, and it means what you think it means. It means finally. It means now, finally, uh, at last. And this is a thrill. I don't think uh, Paul is grumbling. I don't see any grumbling anywhere in the chapter. In fact, it's remarkable to me how commentaries can call this grumbling when he called it rejoicing, mega rejoicing, all right? It's not a criticism on his part. He's not being critical. He's thrilled that the door has finally opened because it's been closed for a season. Now at last expresses a thrill. And any believer, uh, any uh, finite temporal creature like you and me, expresses a thrill for finite temporal creatures living in suspense, waiting for a day that might not ever come. You want it to come. You hope it will come. And you've got confidence that as the Lord provides, it's going to happen. You're just not sure when. And you're not sure if. It may actually turn out that God has a better plan beyond anything we could expect. And so these expectations we're waiting for might never be realized. And if we have divine viewpoint, then when we observe that this expectation has been replaced with something better, then we can celebrate and say, well, thank you, Lord. I'll stop expecting that now. I'll stop waiting for that now because something better has been provided. And in your grace, in your wisdom, in the the glory of your plan, you know better than we do. But nevertheless, while we're waiting for something, we uh, still have this sense of suspense. It's a suspended uh, expectation. Similar to how Paul wanted to travel to Rome. For years he wanted to travel to Rome. I mean how long has it been since the Damascus Road experience where he was called into apostolic ministry when he was told that he was the apostle to the Gentiles and he still hasn't made it to the Gentile world capital? You know you can imagine that's, uh, that's got to be weighing heavy on his heart. He was told that he would testify to kings and yet he has yet to stand before uh, Caesar. And so in Romans 1.10 he talks about always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last. And that at last idiom is the same expression that we have in uh, Philippians 4.10. But it comes with a whole lot of uh, subjunctive moods and a whole lot of language of maybe uh, if perhaps now at last making requests, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. (laughs) You know, if you find any kind of certainty there in verse 10, let me know. I don't see it. All I see is a whole lot of maybe potential subjunctive mood, if perhaps, by the will of God. But there's that finally, the idea that it's been years. It's always been on his heart. And now he gets to write a letter. Now the Holy Spirit is inspiring an epistle it's going to be part of the canon that's going to that flock and uh, you know he's going to put the scroll in the hand of a man that's going to walk there and give it to him and yet paul is not going to walk there and give it to him not quite yet he wants to and that's the idea living in suspense waiting for a day that might not ever come and so they had been previously his biggest support and they had, at one time they were his only support and you can imagine what this is like in in uh, in grace Ministry, if uh, you know a church operates by grace and they they start to observe the the number of supporters is dwindling, the number of supporters is diminishing, and uh you know the treasurer kind of gives a report he's not specific or anything, but he just kind of says, "Well, you know we used to have this number of supporters and this dropped to this number and this number and this number and and so uh, with the conclusion of fiscal year twenty eighteen, those letters have to go out. you've got to send out IRS letters." And uh, and that part of obeying Caesar and submitting to the governing authorities and whatever. So you do, you know, and you send out those letters and we send out fewer than we've ever sent in recent years. And you go, wow, okay. But what happens when you're down to your last one? Because no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Okay. They were the last one. And then they stopped. Okay. So, Paul and his ministry, what what do you think they learned related to faith and related to grace and related to uh, the faithfulness of God in, in all of these things? All right. And so, this is what we're dealing with. Now, at last, and it does express a thrill. And by the way, I think it helps us to pinpoint the writing of this epistle that the writing of this epistle cannot be after 2 Corinthians. It has to be before 2 Corinthians. Because if it's after 2 Corinthians, then this actually is uh, a bitter complaint. This actually is um, quite striking that he would write what he writes in 2 Corinthians if these guys were still suspending their giving. And we'll highlight that as we get to that here shortly. All right. So this is uh, a concept here. Then... Thirdly, concern. Concern is thinking, and it's our final use of thinking. It's our final two uses of thinking. Concern is not emotions. Concern, in this context, concern is thinking. Franeo, and this is the verb we've had in chapter one, in chapter two, in chapter three, in chapter four. Oh, look at that. Every chapter of this book has had thinking in it related to franeo, okay? The verb is franeo, the noun is frain. Uh, it's, it's where we get phrenic, it's where we get schizophrenic, it's where we get uh, different thinking terms as it relates to uh, that. And so have this attitude in yourselves. Have this thinking in yourselves. Think the same way. To be united in thinking and to be concerned about somebody means you're thinking about them. You're praying for them. You're thinking about how you can help them. You're thinking about what the Lord might do to provide for something. You're thinking about. Uh, ways to improve things or change things. You're putting thought into something. Okay? It's not just—it's an emotional thing. It's not a, a hallmark card uh, of, uh, of some kind of an emotion. It is conscious thought that is, that is considering uh, why, how and, and where you might be the provision to meet that believer's need. That's concern. And he says, you were concerned. Uh, you have revived your concern for me. You have revived your concern for me. Meaning, you used to have a lot more and then it dropped. Or you used to have a lot more and then it stopped altogether. And now you haven't even been concerned lately until he realizes, wait a minute, no, you were indeed. Indeed. Now that I think about it, and now that my eyes are open to the reality, indeed, you've been concerned the whole time. Your concern never stopped. It only seemed like it stopped because the money stopped, all right. And that's where any believer, not just Paul, any believer's got to have a, a reality check and wake up and say, "Wait a minute! Don't confuse the money with the concern, and don't uh, don't conflate those, and don't uh, don't lose the real issues related to these things." Indeed, indeed. Now that I think about it, now that I'm grace-oriented again, I've come to be awakened to the fact that your concern never stopped. You were concerned, you have been concerned, but you lacked opportunity. And that's what it came down to. So we'll discuss opportunity as well. So I think that gets us up to where we were on Wednesday. Now, here's the idea of reviving. Here's the idea of reviving. And of all the different terms for reviving, there's there's different language that can be used depending on what the author wants to do. Really, um, this this verb happens to be onothallo, a n a t h a l l o, and it's different from the terminology that you find in Timothy. I mentioned the other night, and then I failed to look it up, um, and I failed to recall if it was First Timothy or Second Timothy. But I can find it. It's Second Timothy one six. I knew it was chapter 1 of whichever Timothy it was. 2 Timothy chapter 1 of verse 6 when he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And that's a reminder to Timothy that if you neglect your spiritual gift uh, you need to stoke it back up again. And the expression there in that passage is one of fire. It's one of a, of a campfire or something that's dwindled down low. That's all that's left or, or coals. And, and so you're poking it with a stick and you're stirring it up. And as you do, it rekindles, it kindles afresh the, uh, the spiritual gift. So that's the language there. Okay. That's not the term that we have here in Philippians 410. However, I think conceptually, uh, it's just choosing a different metaphor to convey the same idea. To, to uh, convey the idea of a revival, to convey the idea of, a, of an amplification of whether it's stirring up the flames or whether it's nursing back to health, uh, whether it's um, a plant that hasn't sprouted in, in several seasons and now you thought it was a dead plant, it was just dormant because now it's sprouting again. And you thought, holy cow, how'd that happen? I never thought that thing would ever sprout again. And lo and behold, it does. And so this is what we deal with. In fact, onothalo is used in the Septuagint with uh, with agricultural, uh, you know, plant type metaphor. Uh, the idea of sprouting to sprout again, to blossom again, is uh, the use in Ezekiel 17. I don't want to spend a ton of time here because it's not really it doesn't pertain to what we're dealing with, but Ezekiel 17 at least as far as an agricultural metaphor is concerned. In verse 24. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. And so, yeah, we've got an extended parable here. And uh, I'm going to chop down this lofty cedar tree. But taking, uh, after you chop it down, though, you take a sprig and uh, from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. And I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches. The so eschatological promise of the future Blessings to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. And that's the verb. I make the dry tree on a follow, flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will perform it. And so, yes, as a metaphor, we recognize that you know, it could be used in a, in a plant, agricultural type of thing, a botanical illustration. It could also be used in a in an animal illustration where it involves nursing, it involves breast milk, it involves a young animal that needs uh, nourishment, and uh, that's what happens here. In fact, thalazzo is a verb that means to nurse, and uh, it's used. Jesus uses it that way in Matthew twenty-one, Matthew twenty-four, Luke eleven. Okay. Again, it's not really applicable. I don't think Paul's using it in a nursing sense necessarily, that you have uh, nursed your concern for me back to health maybe. Um, Anyway, Matthew uh, 21, 16, uh, Jesus said, do you hear what these children are saying? And, uh, oh no, they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And uh, he's made his triumphal entry. The children are singing Hosanna. The religious leaders want him to shut up. Okay? The, the, the kids are thrilled that, that Messiah has entered into his capital, humble, riding on a colt. And uh, anyway, so Jesus says, Do you not, uh, Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. And so there's your verb, nursing babies. Babies. Matthew 24, 19. Talking about the tribulation. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Run. Run now. Run as fast as you can. Whoever is on the housetop. this This is the kind of hurry you're in. If you're on the housetop don't go into the house. You must not go down to get the things that are in his house. In other words, if you stop long enough, now obviously you can't fly, but you're on the rooftop. You're going to have to get to the ground level somehow and run. All right. And if you're going to, I think, (laughs) I think he's being told here, jump off your roof, you know, just jump off or slide down or just run. Whatever you do, Okay, if, even if you don't jump off your roof, if you go through the roof or go through the house, don't stop long enough to grab stuff. Don't stop long enough to, you know, pack a bag or, or things like that. Run. That's how fast you've got to run. And wh- whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. You left it at home that day, too bad. You're not going home to get it. You're in the field already, so you've got a head start for getting out of town. So uh, get, get more out of town and run. And woe to those who are pregnant. You ever see a pregnant woman run? All right. It's funny, but it's not fast. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Nursing babies. And that's our verb, nursing babies. All right. Yeah, babies will slow you down too. All right. Luke eleven twenty seven is the last one. And uh, this is where some of the women were a bit maladjusted. Um, kind of confused and uh, probably the the early stages of Mary worship gets expressed here. So Jesus has a message and they're all excited about it. When Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And that was their reaction to his sermon. Like wow, you had a great mom, okay? Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Well, really, okay. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Okay, and there is a passage for any Roman Catholics you might that you know encounter that tend to worship the Virgin and different things there. So. As far as a root verb goes, thalazo clearly is the root verb to follow, And uh, the idea, again, is to revive something to something that was dormant, something that was weak, uh, and, and you're going to nurse it back to health, or you're going to revive it, or you're going to, it's going to re-sprout or sprout again. Whatever the case is, and however we want to render it in English, uh, the idea is, is that it was either dormant or missing. And it has now revived. Okay, so this is uh, just the concept of revival, and it's a concept that I think we can understand in in a church application. And uh, we used to have whole eras of of uh, the eighteenth, nineteenth century, the Great Awakening, and the Second Great Awakening, and periods of tremendous national revival you would have tent preaching, you would have all kinds of not only gospel uh, presentations, but then basic edification Bible teaching that would stoke the, the flames again, that would wake up believers to say, wow, I haven't really been uh, focused on my spiritual life much. And this revival preacher comes to town and things get stirred up again. They get nursed back to health again. I think this would be a very good verb for that related to things. And in our country, we observe that it only happens uh, like on a nine eleven type disaster or some kind of a tragedy hits or some kind of a thing. And then uh, believers say, wow, we, we've kind of been neglecting our spiritual life. So uh, for about a month, a couple months, you know, uh, they'll, they'll go back to church and get excited again until complacency and it drifts back into uh, where the appetite had been before. All right. Reviving a dead concern. Reviving a dead concern is how it appeared to Paul. But the reality is they never stopped thinking about it. And I think that's significant. Reviving a dead concern is how it appeared to Paul. You revived your concern for me, and that's how it appeared. When it's subjective, and when you're looking at things only from your point of view, things might appear to be a certain way. And as far as it, you know, as far as you can tell, this is what it appears to be. It appears that they they weren't concerned. Until he stopped and said, "Wait a minute, indeed." You were concerned. And so that whole indeed is like a, a surprise expression. And then the you were concerned statement is an admission. It's an admission that, uh, that contrary to a previous statement, such as you have revived, now at last you have revived your concern for me. When he says indeed, that's, that shows a change of perspective. That shows a surprise That shows a concession on his part where he acknowledges something he he wasn't able to see before. Indeed, you have been concerned. You were concerned all along. You were concerned all along. The, The word before is italics. It's not in the text, but it's inferred. It's implied on the basis of the continuous action of the you indeed, you were concerned. I prefer instead of before, just cross off that before and say you Were concerned the whole time. And that, I think, is consistent with this context. The reality is they never stopped thinking about him. They simply lacked the opportunity to express that concern financially. They lacked the opportunity to express that concern financially. And so a concern has to be communicated. A concern has to be made known. And if you don't tell the person you're concerned about them, they're not mind readers. How do they know you're concerned about them? And so you communicate it. And so it can be expressed. And it can be expressed financially, but there's many other ways concern can be expressed. Concern can be expressed uh, in a face-to-face meeting. Concern can be expressed with a visitation. Concern can be expressed if you bother to take the time to meet with a person and sit down and pray with them. And you realize, wow, they took the time to come over here. They took the time to to, uh, to visit me in the hospital. They took the time to read a proverb. They took a the time to come and, and, and offer a prayer. And so those are tangible activities that demonstrate, communicate the uh, the reality of the concern. And so the other person realizes, oh, well, you know, I, I got a card in the mail or I, uh, you know, received a... a uh, a gift card or a certificate or or cash or whatever the case may be, and it's just a reminder that the person is concerned they're thinking about you they're uh, they're supporting you they're wishing you uh good health or recovery or whatever the case may be when you get a uh, a greeting card of that sort. but they lacked the opportunity to express that concern financially, and this is what we're going to talk about with respect to opportunity. All right, Because we've got compounds, we've got two different opposites and it's useful to study them, but even the root expression is also useful to study. So what we have here in Philippians 4.10 is a verb that only occurs one time anywhere in the New Testament, and this is it. Philippians 4.10, where it's used here, akireami. A, which is the alpha privative that negates what follows. Okay, re amai or Cairo, but amai, K-A-I. R-E-O. That's the term that we're looking at. And you're going to notice that right here, the alpha in front of kaira-mi, okay? And then the opposite with the E-U prefix. And then kaira-O. Same verb. The e-mi ending and the e-O ending have uh, some nuance and distinction, but we'll let that go. Just the alpha privative and the E-U prefix. Either there's no opportunity or it's a good opportunity. And even Kairos itself, Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, I don't have it on the screen, but Kairos, you start to learn a couple of different words for time when you study the New Testament. All right, there's Kairos and then there's Kronos. Can I get these going for you? Just show them to you? Let's do this. And so kairos, I don't care. All right, close. All right. Oh, that's pretty. Kairos. All right, K-A-I-R-O-S. It's a time word. And then chronos. So this is C-H-R-O-N-O-S. And that's the one you expect. That's chronology, that's chronological. You've got a chronometer on your arm or whatever. We have chronological time. And this is what we recognize. We're very, uh, of course, we're modern and we're technical and we, we like chronologies and, and uh, we want to synchronize. That means we have a S-U-N in front of our chronos. And uh, that means we're putting our chronos together. My Chronos and your Chronos, we coordinate those. We have just synchronized our uh, Chronoses. But Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Say, Pastor, your handwriting is so sloppy. I can't tell if those are Greek letters or English letters. All right, K-A-I-R-O-S. Now this time, this word for time is actually—it's uh, um, not chronological. It's not sequential it doesn't deal with the measurement it doesn't deal with the length it doesn't measure with the order or the sequence what what kairos speaks to is the appropriateness how it's fitting how it's ideal how it's suited all right and so we would use it for example if uh, if you want to talk to somebody whatever and then you just realize ooh you know what it's just it's just not the time man i want to I want to address this with this person, but, you know, it's just not the time. And when we say it's not the time, we're not saying, you know, because it's 10 or 3 a.m. We're not saying that it's, you know, central standard time. We just mean it's not fitting. It's not opportune. Okay? And uh, some people are, are great at this. And some people are classically terrible at this. I mean, Legendary. Whereby, it just seems that no matter what, they are consistently saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, which means kairos, not chronos, all right? Also, keep in mind, this can become a cop-out, that a chicken, a a believer in fear who really doesn't want to give the gospel anyway, uh, he will then say, well, it just didn't seem like the right time, you know, And, and that just becomes an excuse. Uh, you had a negative volition and, and a fear for evangelizing, and so you just said, well, the timing didn't seem right to me, you know, which is like a day that ends in Y. You just didn't want, you just t- never, it's, the time was never right as far as a person with that attitude is concerned. All right, so uh, we have it, um, we have this statement here where you lacked opportunity, and then there's you, kaire where you have a good opportunity and, and that, that's almost doubly redundant anyway because of kairos is to be opportune and then the EU prefix means to be well opportune. That means you're opportune opportune. I mean you're just doubling it up. It is really a, uh, a, a marvelous moment. It is it's like a hanging curveball. It's just sitting there. And that's your time. The bases are loaded and, and ninth inning of the World Series and there you got it. I mean this is the time. And that hanging curveball is just sitting there, and you gotta you gotta knock that out of the park. So that's eukaireo, okay? Eukaireo, which uh, we have in three places, Mark six thirty one, Mark six thirty one. Verse 30 says, the apostles gathered together. This is unique to Mark's gospel, by the way. We have a detail here that's not in Matthew or Luke or John, for that matter. So the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there, uh, there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. When the ministry is thriving and there's no opportune time, there's no euchareo even for eating, then uh, you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> you're too busy. You've got to take the time. You've you got to eat sometime, And uh, you just can't uh, go 24-7 without eating or, uh, you know, that, how long does that last? When you burn the candle at both ends, eventually you run out of candle. At some point, the, the, the fire meets in the middle and there's no candle left. And so uh, they did not even have time to eat. There was no opportunity to eat. And uh, that's a curious statement. And it's unique to Mark. Mark is the servant gospel and really notices those kind of details related to uh, not even time to eat. How about that? Acts 17, 21. And uh, second missionary journey, and Paul's great team had scattered, and he finds himself alone in Athens. He had arrived in Europe with an apostle, a prophet, evangelist and a pastor teacher. He had a marvelous tandem. You ever think about that? All of the leadership gifts from the equipping gifts from Ephesians four, he had them all: an apostle, a prophet, evangelist and a pastor teacher, with Paul, with Sylvanus, with Luke and with Timothy. And they they made it to Philippi and began to scatter. From Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, the whole dream team was was, uh, divided up. So Paul finds himself in Athens alone. And uh, (coughs) verse 19 says, They took him and brought him to the Europagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And then this commentary, this note, a parenthetical uh, note that Luke records for us here in this chapter. All of the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time. They used to find opportune time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That was their, that was their shtick. I mean, that was their, their pastime, was they loved nothing more than hearing what the latest thing was. Okay. And that's what they always had opportune time to do. Always had an opportune time to, hey, tell us something new. And that was their opportune season. Finally then, 1 Corinthians 16, 12. In the closing details of this chapter, closing details of this book, (coughs) and something that must have been Um, hurtful to one-fourth of this congregation when they read this. Remember, this church was schismatic and and fourth of them were following Paul and fourth of them were following Apollos. And here's Apollos. He says, concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly. And I think that's the same megalos. Uh, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now. I'm sure that didn't go over well, especially among the the crowd that was idolizing him. It was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. He will come when he has the good opportunity, the kaireo opportunity. And so look, if the Lord opens the door, he opens the door. And we want to be obedient when God opens the door. Every door God opens is our good opportunity. And every door God closes... It's not our opportunity. That's the distinction. Now I think that this contrast between akire'amai and eukire'o is similar to the contrast of in season and out of season. The adverbs that we have in 2 Timothy 4.2 and in there we have them in the same verse and they're used in, in uh, contrast. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready akairos and eukairos. Be ready whether you think it's convenient or not. Because the season is God's season, not your season. Okay? And when God says it's his season, then whether it's your out of season is irrelevant. Be ready. Be ready in season and out of season is what we see there. Second Timothy four two. And this comes in most ordination messages and challenges. I'll never forget Emil Schmidt that delivered this on my ordination night. And, oh, by the way, there was a video taken that night and a video that we thought was lost for 20-plus years we thought was lost. It has now been found. And uh, it not only has it been found, it has been digitized. It is not just on a VHS tape, which decays and degrades. And It was pretty poor quality anyway back then. But um, <laughs> anyway... It has been found, it has been preserved, it is digitized. I have a copy and uh, we'll have to find a way to disseminate it and maybe put it on the website or send a a download thing where it can be streamed, um, that kind of a thing. Because uh, Ralph Braun, John Eichmann, Emil Schmidt, those were the three pastors, they're all featured in uh, the messages that they gave, Uh, the message that Emil gave in particular is uh, powerful. So appreciate that. All right. 2 Timothy 4 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom so many things there when you invoke a deity to bear witness to a charge preach the word be ready uh, uh eukairos and Akairos. out of se- in season and out of season Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And I know it says with great patience and instruction. The actual idiom is all, all patience and instruction or doctrine. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the impact of it. And you think, wow, I like the doctrine, but it's more than just academic instruction. Doctrine is really the final word of the, of the verse, but you realize it comes after preach, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and all doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to put up with it. They don't like it. They don't want it. And yet, what's your responsibility? In season and out of season. You keep dishing it out even if they don't want it. Even if the, you know, the little kid's going to be a brat and doesn't want to eat his Brussels sprouts, what do you say? It's good for you. Eat your Brussels sprouts. <laughs> All right. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And uh, the self-appointed teachers when God Himself is the one who does the allotting, Jesus Christ allots sheep to the charge of His under-shepherds. That's His sovereignty. That's His good pleasure. That's His wisdom to do so. And if He does the allotting and then you realot yourself to somebody else that tickles your ears better, what are you doing? You're living in defiance of Jesus Christ. So we have the impact of it there. All right. Opportunity. They lacked opportunity. So whose fault is that? Could they be excused? Yeah, I mean, does God doesn't hold it against them, does He, if they wanted to but they just couldn't? How does that work? Alright. Again, back to Philippians 4. The opportunity. They lacked opportunity. You were concerned. You were concerned the whole time. You were continuously concerned. You never stopped being concerned. But you lacked opportunity. The door was closed. You can't control that. God's in charge of that. You lack opportunity. God doesn't hold it against you if He doesn't open the door. Why would God close the door and then judge you for not going through the door? Because God's the one that shut it. So here's the point. And actually this is a principle. I set it apart and I made it a principle instead of a sub point a or point-two or whatever. Just an independent principle. Whether the opportunity is there or not, Readiness is always rewardable. Whether the opportunity is there or not, readiness is always rewardable. And we learned this doctrine in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll spend a little bit of time here this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Back in our 2 Corinthians series, we taught a whole doctrine of readiness. And God expects us to be ready and to keep ourselves ready. And even if the door is closed, we keep ourselves ready so that when the door is open, we go through. That's right. We don't want to be unprepared because when the door opens, that's not our clue to get, start getting ready. That's too late. The door is open. That's, that's, we should have already been ready. Start getting ready before the door is open. Be ready while the door is closed. Readiness is uh, is what's rewardable. So when the door does open, man, you're right there. You're ready. You're the first one on the scene. Alright. right, Second Corinthians 8, 12-14. Now this is in a context related to church giving, corporate giving, not personal giving. Alright? Personal giving is private. Personal giving is between you and the Lord. Personal giving is not any of my business or anybody else's business. Not even your left hand's business. If it's your right hand doing the giving, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a doctrine of privacy right there, okay? Personal giving is, is private. Church giving, corporate giving is public. What, what the Macedonian churches do, what Philippi does, what Thessalonica does, what Corinth does, that's a matter for the, the body of Christ in full awareness to, uh, to know about and to pray about and to celebrate and to hold their leaders accountable. And so uh, even the chapter begins this way. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those are all the Macedonian churches that we know about. Maybe there was another one in Apollonia, but I don't think that one started until the second century. Anyway, the ones in the New Testament from Macedonia are Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And so these would be the churches of Macedonia. Paul says, I want you to know about it. I want you to know about the grace through those churches. In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. All right, so understand what this means. They were so poor that it overflowed in their wealth. And it almost is, well, I mean, human terms, that doesn't make any sense. In human terms, if you have so much poverty, that can't overflow in your liberal wealth. But in spiritual terms, it can, and it does, and it did. And this is what he's describing. Through the affliction, through the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They gave of their own accord. Notice, according to their ability and beyond their ability. So while the door was closed, while the opportunity was either diminished or absent or gone, they gave according to their ability, but then beyond their ability, because when the door opened again, they were ready. The readiness was there, and they gave beyond. Beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. Grace giving has to be volitional. It has to be cheerful. It has to be because you want to, not because you have to. Begging us with much urging for the favor, the grace, of participation in the support of the saints. To them, it's a grace blessing. Wow, we get to do this. They're discouraged when they can't do this. They, they, they're begging for the opportunity. When the door can open again, we want to do this, we want to do more. They counted a favor. They counted a joy that it blesses them when they can. And it hurts when they can't. And so this, I think, pinpoints Philippians 4.10. Because when Paul says, now at last, it's got to be prior to this statement. Because it says they gave of their own accord and that they gave to them. It says in verse 5, not only this, as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And to us by the will of God. First to the Lord and then to us. See, that's why we don't take money from unbelievers. That's why if an unbeliever wants to support this ministry and we find out about it, we say, sorry. Uh, You have to give yourself to the Lord first. If you're not born again, if you're not glorifying Jesus Christ, if you're not motivated to support the ministry of the Word of God in support of Jesus Christ, then, you know, we don't care that, I mean, it comes right down to it. You're not suited to support this ministry. You're not suited to support us until you first support the Lord. Does that make sense? And so this becomes then the, the privilege and blessing that it is. So when it says here, they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God, that they had been recipients of, Paul and his team had received grace support from the Philippian believers. So that their the time of that closed door was already over by the time he writes Second Corinthians which tells me that he had to have written Philippians first because Philippians is when he's writing his now at last moment. Finally, finally. If you go with the traditional, and here's why it's problematic. If you go with the traditional dating of Philippians and all the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you go with the traditional date and, and origin that it came from the Roman imprisonment of Acts 28, well, now you've got a problem. Because now you're delaying the point that Paul says, finally, now at last, you've revived your concern for me. When prior to that, they had a monster gift they were sending to Jerusalem. And a monster gift that they were entrusting Paul to carry to Jerusalem. Here, Paul, we want you to take $300,000 to Jerusalem, but we can't, we can't give you, you know, 20 bucks. <laughs> or, what, or what have you. You see what I'm saying? If, if we have the traditional dating of the prison epistles that way, then the, the interaction between Philippians 4 and Second Corinthians 8 becomes um, very insulting, very bitter, very jaded. Finally, at last, you've revived your concern for me. And I don't think you, you can't read the text that way. You can't, really, you can't read it that way at all. And so to me, this is one of the most powerful arguments when you're lining up the evidence that says that this was an imprisonment prior to the Acts 28 Romans imprisonment, that he was not in Rome. And that, that leads people then to look at Caesarea. He was imprisoned at Caesarea for two years. He had a single night in Philippi, but he wasn't writing to the Philippians during the one night he spent in Philippi. Uh, when was, but he was also imprisoned in Ephesus. How do we know that? Because we're told far more imprisonments even if the narrative of Acts 20 doesn't tell us the exact details. All right. So, that's what we look at there. Continuing on, though, here's, here's more grace. So, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And, uh, and this, not as we had expected because they had a season of, of no opportunity, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. So the opportunity reopened to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. That the Macedonian churches were able to coordinate now because they were giving funds. Paul finds out that Titus had begun something similar with Corinth and probably Athens and probably uh, Sancria, the Uh, Achaean churches as well as the Macedonian churches. So we urge Titus. He had begun, made previously made a beginning, hey, complete that gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, knowledge, and so forth, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. And until you can abound in grace, until you can abound in faith, until you can abound in uh, knowledge of the Word of God, until you can abound in love one for another, get those things worked out first in your Christian walk. Then you'll have capacity to abound financially. Then you'll have the capacity to abound in a, in a way that really glorifies Jesus Christ financially. All right. For you, Verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty, you through His poverty might become rich and we this whole chapter is full of this contrast here all right verse 10 i give my opinion in this matter for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this but also to desire to do this matter of fact once he gets the report from titus he figures it out you know what those macedonian those macedonian churches got this idea but actually it was the Achan churches they had the idea first They actually started first. They got started before the Macedonian churches got started. The only difference was Macedonian churches got started and and put it together and got it done. Well, Corinth is kind of dragging their feet. So Paul says, we need to finish what we start here. Because you desire, you began a year ago not only to do this, that's with an intention, but to desire to do it. That's the readiness. Is the desire, the desire to do it. So, finish doing this also, that there is uh, the readiness to desire it. So, there may also be the completion of it by your ability. And here's the key point if the readiness is present, it's acceptable. If the readiness is present, it's acceptable. That is a sweet smelling savor, acceptable sacrifice, acceptable to God. If the readiness is present, if you have a grace giving readiness, that's rewardable, whether you, the opportunity is there or not. So, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I mean, come on. God's not stupid, He knows you don't have it. The reason why He knows you don't have it is because He didn't give it to you. <laughs> He knows you don't have it because He didn't trust you with it. He knows you can't handle it. But what He has given you is what you can handle, is what He does trust you with, is what you must be faithful with. And according to what you have, that's what you're accountable for, is your readiness. That's what you have. That's where He's placed you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Not according to what He doesn't have. For this is not... For, the e- for this is not for the ease of others in your affliction, but by way of equality. Here's where real Christian equality comes about. At the present time, at this kairos, at the, at the now opportunity, your abundance being a supply for their need. Jerusalem, the saints in Jerusalem. So at the now opportunity, it is the Corinthians' now opportunity for giving, and it's the Jerusalem now opportunity for giving. For receiving. And which is more blessed? To give rather than to receive. But guess what? It could turn around next week. It could turn around next year. It might be on a later opportunity. Jerusalem will have the opportunity to give and Corinth will have the opportunity to receive. So at the present now opportunity, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, the day may come that they will return the grace, not because they owe it to you, but because grace is grace. So that uh, there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. Grace in the church is a powerful thing and that's what we're looking at here. All right, so whether opportunity is there or not, readiness is always rewardable. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for truth. I pray you would open our eyes to this. we would see, that we would foster an attitude of readiness, that we would be looking for the open door, and we'd be preparing even before the door is open, Father. It wasn't raining when Noah obeyed, and that's uh, that's such a powerful principle, Father. If uh, if you waited for the rain to start before he decided to start getting ready to build an ark, it would have been way too late. So, Father, open our eyes to these truths. Thank you for being faithful. Help us to be ready in season and out of season, so that when it's your season, Father, we can now uh, run with endurance the race that's set before us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.